Okay, let's see if I remember how to do this. Hi everyone, and welcome to the Laser Podcast. I'm Cameron Copas. I'm a graduate student studying uh, superconducting devices at Arizona State University. And uh, this is a little, I know it's been a while since our last uh, post, and this show may be a little unconventional, but I wanted to share a recent paper that's kind of been making some waves among the scientific community and on Twitter, because this is about a claim of room temperature superconductivity. So I might regret speaking out about this so early. Uh, it just was posted as a preprint on the archive, so I'll kind of treat this as a paper review, as if I were uh, doing a review for a journal or something, and we'll and then we'll wait and we'll see how uh, the data end up working out with peer review and reproducibility and all that in the future. So it's just uh, kind of some quick opinions about this, this preprint. So this is about a group from a the respectable institute of Indian Institute of Science in Bangalore with graduate student Dev Kumar Thapa and associate professor Anshu Pandey. I hope I'm pronouncing those right. Uh, we have a history of bad pronunciation also, but they've posted a preprint paper on the archive and it's titled Evidence for Superconductivity at Ambient Temperatures and Pressures in Nanostructures. So, very exciting. Uh, even though this is posted on the archive, so this is a preprint of a paper, it's not peer-reviewed yet, it's not in final manuscript form, but it's a fast way for the authors to write something up, publish it, and get people to start reading it and commenting it so they know what they need to firm up and get ready before uh, they publish it in a peer-reviewed journal, sometimes. I will, of course, have links in the show notes because this is free to read since it's on the archive, and I'll have lots of links because there's a few things we'll talk about. But most important thing about this paper is that they claim to have measured superconductivity at 236 Kelvin in silver nanoparticles in a gold matrix. If you don't know Kelvin, uh, room temperature is about 300 Kelvin. That might be a little bit hot for some people, but that's uh, what it is in in Phoenix. Uh, <laughs> so 236 Kelvin is very close. And it's especially remarkable when you look at a lot of other superconductors. A regular metal superconductor has a transition temperature around 9.2 Kelvin. This is the temperature where it goes from being a normal metal to superconducting. So 9.2 Kelvin is very cold. It requires basically liquid helium to get to that temperature. And that's the highest transition temperature metal, which is or pure metal, which is niobium. 
Above that, we have some high temperature. We have some alloys that go up a little higher, or I think around 30 Kelvin. And then high temperature superconductors, which are usually complicated cuprate structures. They are YBCO, BSSCO, so we pronounce that one as BISCO, and HBCCO. Those TCs are 92 Kelvin, 110 Kelvin, and 133 Kelvin. Now, even those are still pretty cold. They are achievable with liquid nitrogen, but this 236 is much, much higher than that. And I think that's probably uh, 236 is close to minus 40 C. So I don't know, probably outside in Canada sometimes. So yeah, it's not, not really that, that far off from room temperature. So this is a very exciting possibility and there really isn't any reason why it should be impossible. It's just that nobody has found anything like this yet. And especially since it's such a simple structure, uh, silver nanoparticles in gold, I mean, relatively simple compared to the, the cuprate superconductors. So again, yeah, I'm talking about this paper because there is, it is so exciting and there is some controversy about this paper. I mean, there should always be whenever something this important comes out, people should look at it critically. There's some issues with the data, but I want to say that the the claim their claim is extraordinary. They characterized their material pretty extensively, so they weren't just you know throwing something out the first day they measured it, and they kind of documented everything that I would normally look for. Um, so assuming the data are correct and everything is independently reproducible, this could be a really serious discovery for the field of superconductivity. So before I go too deep into the paper, uh, talking about this, if case, in case people don't know what superconductors are, uh, here's a really quick summary of superconductivity. So a superconductor is a material that conducts electricity or conducts electrons without any resistance. They're really important for high-tech devices, scientific research stuff, uh, especially in wireless communications and in like really, really sensitive sensor applications, stuff like telescopes and radar arrays and, and that kind of thing. So the primary goal here is to make, uh, with superconductors, uh, superconducting devices, is usually to make high-tech devices that require the unique properties of these superconductors, not just stuff like power lines that don't have any energy loss. I mean, that would be great. There is a group actually trying that, but I think most superconducting scientists don't see that as a, even a reasonable or like that's not what they're excited about. We're, we're excited about the other properties that are that are really interesting. There are two types of superconductors. There are ones that screen magnetic fields completely, so they, they block them. These are called type or these are type one. And there are some that allow magnetic fields to pass through tiny little pinholes that we call fluxons or flux vortices. And these are type two superconductors. A really easy way to remember the difference is that for the most part, all of the type one superconductors are the pure metals. So that's all those that are the low temperature metal superconductors, 10 Kelvin and below. And these completely block any magnetic fields. So while it's superconducting, a magnetic field can't go around it. And then up to when you increase the magnetic field too much, eventually it'll just break the superconductivity and it'll become a normal metal. The type two superconductors are almost all the compounds. And these 
up to a certain magnetic field they block and then they let it through in little pinholes and then they have really 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 high magnetic fields to actually kill the superconductivity in these type 2 materials so that's that first point where it lets through the fields in little vortices in little flux vortices is critical field one h as in the magnetic field c as in critical so critical field one is the smaller one critical field critical field two is the higher field one all right uh that should be enough background information for what I'm going to say. Oh, well, no, I guess that's not. Uh, so it, you you measure superconductivity by looking at the resistance of a material. So these, let's say the I'm going to take these these metals for an example. Uh, a normal metal superconductor has resistance. I mean, not a lot of resistance because it's a metal, but it has some resistance. And as you cool it down, that resistance slowly gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And then at some point, or all of these, every material, the resistance will get slowly smaller and smaller and smaller if it's metallic. And then when it hits that superconducting transition temperature, the resistance has slowly been going down. Suddenly it drops sharply to zero. And that's what we call the transition temperature. So it's not a small effect. We use this effect for a lot of things. Like if you keep something sitting there and a very, very small perturbation or like a single photon can knock it to normal. And it's really easy to measure the difference. So it's not just something that very slowly becomes superconducting. It's it's ideally an instantaneous transition from normal to superconducting. And there's reasons for that. Uh, maybe we'll do an explanation on superconductors and Cooper pairs and BCS theory at some point. But that's a big time investment that I don't really want to get into right now. So that should be enough background information for what I'm going to talk about. Okay, on to the publication. So like I said earlier... They have made a remarkable claim of superconductivity at 236 Kelvin. And these are nanostructures of silver nanoparticles. So the particles are about 10 nanometers in diameter, embedded in a gold matrix. So basically you have an ocean of gold with little silver ping pong balls floating in it. If the ping pong balls were really small and the ocean was also really small. A swimming pool. Swimming pool is a good uh, example. Or you're a... Uh, yeah. That, that's that's fine. <laughs> Easy thing to point out right off the bat is that neither gold nor silver are superconducting on their own. And they, they do some uh, chemical structural analysis of their samples, and it does show that it's not, it's not an alloy or anything. So these are silver nanoparticles next to gold. Uh, so this does match up with the author's claim that the superconducting property has something to do with the actual nanostructures and not the bulk properties of, of gold and silver. It might just be the silver alone, or it might just be, it might be a combination of the two, but it is, it's a property of the nanostructures themselves, which is kind of common in a lot of nanostructures. They have very different properties than the bulk materials would, and they're sometimes hard to predict, I think. Uh, I don't know a lot about, I don't do a lot about nanostructures, so I don't uh, really know that. Uh, okay, so they're, just I'll just go through the paper in order. So starting out, looking at the nanostructures in the transition electron microscopes, the TEM images, they are actually pretty uniform, and it looks like they have good distribution across in their sample. So that's at, at nanometer scale, so their little silver dots are, are well distributed and well defined. But the whole... Okay, their structures at macro scale, so at scales you see with a, a regular microscope they don't really have great shape or uniformity or anything and this could cause problems with 
conductivity and making sure everything is actually connected. So that's more of a sample connection issue and that kind of stuff. But yeah, their their large scale nano structures don't really have great shape or uniformity is what it looks like to me. But down at the nanoscale, when they show their transition electron microscope, the TEM images, their particles are fairly size uniform and well distributed. So on the nanoscale, their material actually looks really good. They talk about some other characterization they do. They did x-ray, energy dispersive x-ray spectroscopy. So that shows that it's basically just silver and gold, and they have a size distribution of a bunch of particles. That is all pretty nice. Uh, even the, the x-ray diffraction looks looks reasonable. Uh, I don't see any problems with it, even though it's not maybe useful in this context. But they did a lot of good characterization on their material. Now, after that is the... So that they know how to make these nanostructures pretty well. After that is kind of where I start to have issues with things. Now, a little context for why I'm talking about this and uh, why... I might seem a little nitpicky, is that first of all, I spent uh, a lot of time a while back working with some unvalidated claims of room temperature superconductivity, and then I'm also currently writing my my dissertation. So I'm in the mindset of looking really, really critically at every little figure and saying, oh, this could be better if you adjust this a little bit. Uh, so everything I'm going to say that sounds bad about the paper isn't necessarily my opinion that the paper is bad. I'm just, I'm not ripping apart the author's work totally. I'm just kind of offering or offering my criticisms and advice and comments on the little things that I saw uh, reading through this. I understand this is a paper that's not peer-reviewed or published yet. So I'm kind of just treating this as if this paper were sent to me if I were the a, a reviewer for it. This is the stuff that I would point out. Uh, and these are the same things that reviewers will pick up on, reviewers and editors. I, ideally, they they will pick up on these same things, and, and all this will get fixed before the final publication of this paper, assuming everything is satisfactorily dealt with. So I'll just start, like I said, in order. So right on their second figure, they are showing the superconducting transition in resistance versus temperature. So this is a good indicator of superconductivity. This drop looks correct. Uh, it has a high resistance, and then it suddenly drops down to basically zero, or the measurement limit in resistance. There's a little, a little bit of a weird thing with this, is that they are plotting it as resistance versus temperature, uh, which is not ideal with really small and thin samples like this. They said this sample is 25 nanometers thick. So in this case, it's kind of important to use resistivity, which is a thickness normalized measurement of resistance, uh, because they say their resistance is 0 0.7 ohms. And I had to do some back-of-the-envelope calculations to I'm estimating because I don't know all their correction factors and everything about their geometry, but that's pretty close to the the normal resistance. It's pretty close to the normal resistance of regular gold. So it's like two to ten micro ohm centimeters is the unit are the units we use, 
And that's important because when you get a really thin sample, its resistance goes up, but its resistivity stays the same. So the resistivity is like a material property and the resistance isn't. So showing it in resistance will make it, everybody will have to do more work to compare it to anything else. And they won't really be able to do that properly unless they, they make some assumptions about the correction factors and some things like that. So this is definitely a place where you should be using resistivity instead of resistance. So whatever, that's just a... Now in the second part of that figure, so figure 2b, they show that as you increase the magnetic field, the transition temperature goes down. This is the same thing that we would expect in any superconductor. The reason is the magnetic field is putting energy into the Cooper pairs and making it easier for them to break. And yeah, so this is this is reasonable, but their figure is weird because they have a plot, a scatter plot of the magnetic field versus temperature with magnetic field on the y-axis and temperature on the x-axis. And a ma magnetic field is the thing that they're actually changing. That's the, the independent variable. So that should definitely be on the x-axis because to really see what you're, what you're doing, I don't know, you have to look at this or you, to really actually see what's happening. You have to kind of turn the graph sideways and that's just not nice. Um, Oh, the other thing that I wanted to say about the resistance is that because this resistance is very close to that of normal gold, I, I kind of wouldn't expect that. With their, their nanostructures, so they have low resistance, or low resistivity, I compare the actual resistivity, compared to what I would expect for a nanostructure that isn't a conformal flat film at 25 nanometers thick. Uh, adding silver nanoparticles shouldn't reduce the the conductivity or shouldn't increase the resistance at all. At all, it's kind of hard to get gold to conduct worse by adding impurities, but making it not fully connected should have shot the resistance way up. So this resistance is actually lower than I would expect for this type of sample, and that is a little bit weird. I would like to uh, either see more about the resistivity sample prep, what they provided wasn't really enough, or something, because this just seems a little bit low. It just makes me nervous, that's all. Okay, skipping ahead to the next figure. So, figure three is a another way to show the superconducting transition temperature, and that is magnetic susceptibility, where they use volume susceptibility, which is good, that's a normalized, that's the susceptibility normalized to the volume of the sample versus temperature. Now in susceptibility with superconductors, it's another great way to see the transition because a normal metal will let magnetic fields go through it and then materials have a, a certain amount of diamagnetism or, or ferromagnetism that reacts to the magnetic field, but it doesn't react a lot. So it has a, a very small susceptibility then at the transition, a superconductor, like we talked about earlier with the, the Meissner effect, a superconductor should be a perfect diamagnet, meaning it blocks all the magnetic field. Its susceptibility should drop from close to zero to minus one. In this sample, you see a good susceptibility transition for one, two, three, four, five different temperatures. And they have, again, that magnetic field versus temperature plot. Oh, that says temperature. It should say transition temperature. That's another weird thing. Uh, and it's still magnetic field on the y-axis. So it this looks like what I would expect. 
except the susceptibility goes from 0 to minus 0 0.06. What that implies to me is that either not all of the material is superconducting, or, oh no, that's, that's what that means. It's supposed to be minus 1. So this means that not all of the material is superconducting. Minus 0 0.06, I mean, you can just say, without accounting for some geometry factors and that kind of stuff, that about 6% of this sample is superconducting. Uh, which is fine. I mean, that, that wouldn't, it wouldn't mean that this isn't an important measurement. This is, this is great. You're showing, they have shown that it does go superconducting in both resistivity and in susceptibility. So that's exciting. But this figure is where some other people uh, have found some issues. Some of this data, they've, they've measured the susceptibility at different temperature or at different magnetic fields. And uh, Brian Skinner, who is, I believe, a postdoc at MIT, he is on Twitter as at gravity levity. So that's gravity underscore levity. And he has looked at this data carefully and discovered that in two of these magnetic fields, the noise pattern in the, the superconducting section, so that the noise floor, is exactly the same. Like you can look at the, the green and the blue dots, the noise follows the exact same pattern. But then when you look up higher during in the actual transition, the data aren't the same. They don't match up. There, there's even different spacing and everything. So that is a little, that, that's very concerning uh, in this kind of work. The noise should be, for the most part, random, assuming Unless there is some measurement setup effect, but we don't see it on the other two or three scans, the data should be random when it's measuring that low susceptibility. And for it to be exactly repeating really makes it look like this data was potentially manipulated or something down there. And it could be a mistake, it could be an instrument thing, but those things aren't supposed to happen in scientific publications. You're supposed to make sure you, you don't make a mistake before you do this, uh, because that is a, I mean, that's a big deal. So this data is, is basically suspect. Uh, it's unfortunately, it's, it's exactly what you'd be looking for to make sure it's okay, but it is suspect now because of that, that issue with the noise. Um, so Brian Skinner has been in contact with the authors and there's a big discussion thread about this on Twitter, so I will post a link to that. And the authors are, at this point, standing by the data. Um, they say that, yeah, they, they say that it's a weird thing, there must be something with the measurement setup, and they'll look into it, uh, but that they didn't notice it before. So this is, I mean, currently unfolding. Uh, I think this, this little thing will change the paper from either being a mistake to something dishonest. I mean, this this happens maybe some other fields where they notice blot patterns have been copied, and that's how they've, they've discovered some faked data. For now, I I'm going to say that this is, I mean, it's being worked out, so we will see how it unfolds. The only thing we can really do is comment to the authors, make sure the editors and reviewers of the paper know, and hopefully it gets figured out. And I, hopefully it's not data manipulation or, or anything.
because on a very exciting project, there's basically and uh, just basically destroy your career. Yeah. But other than that, I like the plot. <laughs> okay, I'm just gonna I'm gonna go on and not talk about this forever. So, all right, the fourth figure. So they go on and they talk about how changing the fraction of gold to silver, so decreasing the amount of gold and increasing the amount of silver in their uh, samples, also changes the transition temperature. Figure 4a is a nice plot of three different samples where they did this, and reducing the gold fraction increases the transition temperature quite a bit to above room temperature, actually. Here's one above 300 Kelvin for when they do 0.8 mole fraction gold. This kind of makes me wonder why, if you're doing this, why didn't you optimize it and then say above room temperature superconductivity for the whole paper instead of 236 Kelvin? I mean, if they specifically have a sample that's 300 and something Kelvin, and they mention in the paragraph, but then they don't show it in the plot, they have one that's way above 300 Kelvin, but they, their measurement system can't even get high enough to measure its transition. If it were my plot, I would say, look, I'll draw a dotted arrow and it's off this way somewhere. But they they didn't pick those for the, the paper, so I'd, I just don't know why uh, they would do that. That's fine though. This is a this is an interesting plot, and it's the same kind of thing that uh, you would see in a a YBCO paper uh, when when they were working on YBCO. It was the oxygen fraction. It's YBCO is yttrium one, barium two, copper three, oxygen seven minus X, and it was getting a little bit less than seven oxygen that really made great superconducting properties. So, same kind of thing that we would see in those papers. Then figure fours B and C, um, these are resistivity versus temperature for a, a sample that is superconducting. So they, they only showed it in the region, the, the one that they can't measure the transition for. I don't, I don't really know what they're showing here. To me, it, because you don't see a transition and because it's so noisy and it's plotted at a very small scale, it just looks like you're, this is an entire figure of noise without a label on it or anything, it's just mentioned in the paragraph. It just says resistivity and susceptibility for nanostructures with low gold mole fraction. The susceptibility, again, just a straight line. So these plots kind of aren't interesting, and because there's no labeling on the actual plots themselves, it actually took me a minute to figure out what I was looking at. So I would probably not have included those, or you know, do something else with them, add some labels, make it clear what they are trying to show. I understand you have a lot of data and you want to get more of it out, but these maybe aren't helpful to to somebody who's trying to read the paper and actually understand what they did and try to reproduce it and that kind of stuff. That is the majority of my comments for this, the actual bulk of the paper. Um, I have a few little things there. There's some weird units. In addition to the resistivity, they talk about some grams per cubic centimeter so they write it as g over cc uh, which to me sounds like a medical field thing to do we will talk about cubic centimeters sure but we, it's a little weird to say grams per cc and then a few other little things that seem like they're not fully in the 
superconducting field jargon, like just the, the language that is used is a little bit different, which is fine. I mean, everybody should be able to publish in different fields. Uh, and we want this kind of cross-disciplinary science because these aren't traditional superconducting researcher research group. This is a, like a nanostructures research group. So it's great. It's just, it threw me off a couple of times while actually reading the text. And there is one point where, oh, that same grams per cubic centimeter part, they switch from grams per cubic centimeter, which is the CGS unit system, to the same line or the next line down, the susceptibility in SI units. And they say SI because susceptibility is a different thing in SI and CGS. And they are both unitless, so it's a and it's good to, to say which one you're using, uh, but switching from CGS to SI is, is kind of funny. Uh, they The authors included a lot of good... The authors included a lot of good supplementary information. So there's some TEM images, uh, AFM, X-ray diffraction, EDS, and some images of the resistivity measurement setup. So they, they obviously did a lot of work to characterize these, and they know their, their characterization techniques. One of my problems with supplemental data is the S3, figure supplemental 3, is looks like just a screenshot of their their analysis software so it's really blurry it has like some excel spreadsheet looking file pasted in the image and then it has the x-ray lines for the materials they're trying to show and most of them are labeled but not all of them are so that doesn't really make their case uh, there is a peak at 8 kev that's large it's as it's larger than the some of the gold peaks and some of the silver peaks. And anybody who doesn't really do a lot of EDS wouldn't notice, wouldn't necessarily know that 8kV is probably the copper grid that they put the sample on. So it would have been really good to label this and it would be even better to export the data and plot it in something that isn't a messy screenshot of a analysis software that isn't really meant for publication. Maybe again, I'm nitpicking, but big unlabeled peak on an EDS plot is not good form. After that, the S6 shows their electrode array for how they measure the resistivity, but it's just kind of a photo of the contacts and not the sample itself or anything. So it's not that useful. And then figure seven and eight, they have just seven different resistance versus temperature samples. Uh, figure S8, the, the caption is actually transitions in resistivity as observed for three different samples, but it doesn't say what the samples are or why why we want to see three random different samples. So it's just showing the same thing over and over and over. And then the, figure, the samples in figure seven, they all match up nice for resistance versus temperature. It's a nice a nice metallic decrease in resistance from room temperature down to their transition. And then it drops pretty well. A little bit of noise, but that kind of stuff is, is generally re repeatable. The noise in the uh, normal metal part, that's kind of repeatable because that can be from cooling in, they use a quantum design PPMS. So if the cooling rate changes, they, they switch pumps. We I see the same type of repeatable bumps at the same spots. So that's that's an effect of the measurement system. That's fine. But the other issue, or the issue I have with it is that this resistance, 1.7 to 1.9 ohms, is very, very different than the stuff that they show earlier on. They were showing 0.7 ohms. 
So that's very, very different. It's twice. They don't explain why the sample is different. The magnetic fields are, are the same. The sample is, I, I'm assuming, the same, but they don't say why the resistance is different compared to the ones that, one that they included in there. So when you double the, the resistivity, I mean, what what's going on? Is this a thicker sample, so it has the same resistivity? Or is it actually double and they did something else to it? I would like to know about that. Yeah, so... So that is all my comments on this paper. Uh, wow, that was a lot longer than I expected. I thought this would be 10 minutes. Okay, that's my comments on this paper. I am very excited about this, and actually I've been emailing my professor about it for almost a week and talking about it. Uh, it looks promising, and if that, except for that little bit of data that looks manipulated, they they did everything that you should look at or all the things that that I would look at and they actually have a lot of good characterization it's not everybody that has access to this TEM EDS AFM uh, resistivity susceptibility all these different types of measurements are I mean they they obviously have a good good lab setup and they know how to use it so in addition to the complicated sample prep because I think they use a sol gel process and then cast the the nanostructures onto glass slides and i i don't even i don't know anything about this nano structure uh, synthesis because i mostly just do thin films so they obviously have a good lab and they seem like they know what they're doing so i really hope that this controversy with that susceptibility measurement gets worked out and i i will keep an eye on it and maybe i'll post an update in an upcoming episode that is all for today. I hope everybody reads this paper, or at least instead of just reading some of the news articles about it, this is a free-to-read paper. Everybody should read it. It's complicated, but if you want to be reading papers, all it takes is a lot of practice and reading it slowly. The data is in there. It's just really dense, and that's all. All right, bye. Have a good day. Oh, you know what? Before I go, this is a short episode. This is going to be a laser pulse. So I'm just talking about one paper. It's just me and I'm going to do minimal editing so that I can publish this relatively quickly. I am currently writing my dissertation, so I don't really have a lot of time lately and uh, I've been busy the last couple of years. But the laser podcast, we've been talking about recording for the entire time that we haven't been recording. Uh, We actually have one episode fully recorded. It's over a year old though, so I don't know if I really want to finish editing it and publish it, but if anybody wants to hear year old paper discussion uh, with recorded with a full crew instead of just myself, uh, it might might be fun. Maybe I could get back into that. Uh, yeah, at least I would like to start doing more of these quick episodes, uh, maybe just on Skype, but a short show is a lot easier to edit than a long show. So a one hour show probably takes two or more hours of audio and lots of cutting and editing and moving stuff around and it's a lot of work for me and uh, these little these little short ones are easier to schedule to research and then to just record quickly and edit and publish them out so I'm going to try to start doing more of these and I'm going to talk to everybody else in the crew and see if they want to do this also all right bye thanks for listening This has been The Laser Podcast, or Let's Agree Science and Engineering are rad. Show notes are available on the website at laserpodcast.com. You can send us an email, contact at laserpodcast.com. 
contact us on Twitter at Laser Podcast or find us on Facebook or Google Plus. You can leave a rating on iTunes or listen to us on Stitcher. The intro music is Open from the band Crying, and the outro music is Dreams Are Maps from The Wild. You can find more information about the show, links to all the stories we talk about in the show notes on the website. Thanks. Bye.